Let me ask you a question. What is the most beautiful thing you have ever laid eyes on? What beauty has taken your breath away? Perhaps it's something small, perhaps it's something grand. Yesterday, after days of rain, I took myself for a walk up Mount Kaukau and I could see snow-capped mountains in the South Island set against blue skies, the sun shining, 360 views of all of Wellington. If you've ever been up there, it is quite beautiful, almost indescribable beauty. But sometimes you go up Mount Kaukau and there is zero view at all. You are surrounded by clouds and you can barely see your hand in front of you. Now, sometimes great beauty is obscured or distorted or marred. And today we come to the topic of love and sex and relationships. And it's a sensitive topic for all of us. But it's my hope that as we look at God's word on this topic, we will be drawn into the beauty of the heart of Jesus for his people. There is nothing more beautiful than God's love for sinners like us. That is my hope and my prayer. We're going to be reading from the book of Song of Songs, and it's a book of love poetry between two lovers, and it invites us into the bedroom, which is kind of a place that maybe we don't really want to be. We don't want to be a fly on the wall in a, in a bedroom between two lovers. But it is a story that points to the great love of God for his people, the intimacy that we are invited to have with the God who made us. So as we come to his word, I'm going to pray that we can set aside any awkwardness, any past experiences, and that God might move our hearts. So I'll invite Kat up to come. She's going to read the Bible for us. And as she does that, please bow your heads with me. Lord, today as we come to your word, would you please clear away the clouds of our past experiences, the fog of our cultural narrative, that we might see with clarity the exquisite beauty of the love, of love done right in your eyes. Lord, all of us want to be known, but more than that, we want to be loved for who we are. So please draw us in to not just know about, but to feel the great love you have for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Song of Songs, chapter 3. Chapter 3. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? 
Scarcely I, I, had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made with silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee... I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a steeled fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Thanks there, cats. Uh, Good morning. I'd like to add my welcome to that of Adele's. Uh, My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's great to see you at church this morning. Uh, why don't I pray as we uh, start uh, looking at this part of God's Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scriptures. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the way that your Word speaks into all areas of life. 
And Lord, we pray that we'll be people who uh, don't just trust your word in one part and ignore it in another, uh, but that we might see the goodness of your word for all of life, uh, for every aspect of our life and relationships, uh, but particularly as we see your word point us so clearly to Jesus. And Lord, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Uh, one of the things about life in the world is that we can't see the air that we breathe. Uh, you need a minimum uh, of uh, 15% oxygen, they say, to stay alive. But as you breathe in, you can't tell. Uh, you can't tell the air you breathe. As we look at Song of Songs, uh, it is really helpful for us to be aware of the cultural air we breathe when it comes to love, sex and relationships. Uh, see, to live in the 21st century in the West is to be breathing the air of the sexual revolution. Uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, it totally changed how we think about our bodies and our sexuality and our identity. Uh, so what is the air that we breathe when it comes to sex in the 21st century? Well, I think it can boil down to three things. Uh, firstly, sex is seen as a bodily urge. Uh, sex is sold as a physical instinct that's just hardwired into all of us. Uh, so later on this afternoon, if you're hungry, you can get a burger. Uh, if you're turned on, you have sex. It's just a bodily urge that you do. Uh, the second thing about the, uh, the air we breathe is sex is now all about self-realization. And that means uh, we look to sex to discover our most authentic self. Uh, through sex and sexual expression, we, uh, we, we establish our core identity. And so, therefore, there should be no barriers and no restrictions. Because if you place barriers and restrictions on that, then you're doing damage because you're denying your authentic self. The third thing we see is that sex is amoral. Amoral. That is, with the, uh, the advent of contraception, uh, sex has been detached from uh, making babies. Uh, and so, now we're told you can have sex with uh, whoever you want and have as much as you want. It just doesn't matter. As long as there's consent, there's no rights and wrongs. Just go ahead and enjoy it without guilt, worry, or consequences. In the 21st century, that's the air we breathe. Uh, that's what's being taught to our children and our youth at school. That's what they're being discipled in as they watch YouTube and Netflix and as they play around on social media. And this view of sex is sold to us as wonderfully liberating and good. But there are some issues with it, aren't there? You see, that view of sex, it struggles to explain people like Harvey Weinstein, a man who used his power and his wealth and his privilege just to follow his bodily urges. That view of sex struggles to explain why it's wrong for kids to watch porn on the school bus and then act it out when they go home. It struggles to take seriously the deep emotional scars left behind when sex is used and abused. You see, the argument that sex is just a physical urge, it's a total sham. And we know it is, don't we? We know that by nature, it's deeply emotional and personal. It can create great joy. It can bond two people together in the most profound way. But we also know that when it's abused, it can wound very, very deeply. As people in this room will know all too well. And so is there a better narrative 
for sex than simply it being an amoral bodily urge for self-fulfillment. Well, the Bible says yes. Uh, Song of Songs says yes. As the Song of Songs sings to us of God's better love song. Uh, His better picture uh, for love, sex and relationships. And it's a good word for us wherever we are at. Wherever we are at. Uh, So come with me to the Song of Songs, God's Wisdom for Good Relationships. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll remember that Song of Songs is this poetic love song. Uh, It's about a couple, a man and a woman who are relating well. And as we watch their relationship flourish, uh, as they follow, sorry, we watch their relationship flourish as they follow God's good design. And that flourishing and that following of God's good design, it includes sexual intimacy. And as we see this relationship between this man and this woman, what happens as we watch them is is our chin keeps lifting up lifting higher to see not just them, but to see God and his love for us through his son, Jesus. Uh, But as we come to the text today, the first thing we see about God's good design for sex is that it involves waiting. It involves waiting. Did you notice that at the beginning of chapter 3? At the beginning of chapter 3, our lovers have been separated Uh, This happens a lot through Song of Songs, kind of they're separated and they're looking for each other and they find each other. And then just as things get a little bit risky, it cuts to a new scene. Uh, This is what's going on here. Our our lovers have been separated. The husband, a local shepherd, he may be away tending his uh, sheep in a far off field. We don't know. Uh, But whatever we do know is that uh, his beloved, she misses him. She's waiting for him. She's yearning for his return home. Uh, We saw it there in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, all night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves I looked for him but did not find him she's in bed but he is not and so she goes looking for him verse 2 I will get up now and go about the city through the streets and the squares I will search for the one my heart loves eventually after a late night search of the city she finds her husband Uh, she leads him home and the rest is left to your imagination Uh, But what's important for us to notice here is the waiting. The waiting. She waits for her husband. Now, that's very significant. You see, she doesn't feel this bodily urge and just simply find the nearest man or woman to satisfy that need. The lovers here don't open their phones and satisfy themselves with pixels on a screen. They don't go to an app uh, and see who's around to hook up with or head to the bar or seek out sex for money. No, they wait She waits for sex in its God-given context. She waits for the right one. She waits for the right moment. And it's not just these lovers who wait until they can be together. For those who are not married, God's good design involves waiting too. See there in verse 5, the woman speaks to her unmarried friends and she says, verse 5, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field... Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, this is a riff that's kind of repeated throughout the Song of Songs. It's there in chapter 2. It'll come up again in chapter 8. And it's a riff that sounds out right before a moment of kind of intense intimacy. And it's as though the woman is, is, is reminding her unmarried friends, God's design involves waiting. Now, our culture just doesn't do waiting. We don't do it. Uh, We want it all and we want it now. Whether it's instant finance or fast food or on-demand everything, we've lost the art of waiting. 
kind of immediate and effortless gratification is our way of life. And so the, the prospect of waiting, even for the shortest of cues, what do we do? We get out our phone and we start scrolling because we can't wait. And so the thought of being patient until the right time, well, it doesn't make sense to us. But God's good design for sex is to wait. To wait for the context for which it has been given. And that's for all of us. For the married, for the single, for the dating. And to not wait. Well, you know what that means? That's, to not wait is to say to God, I know better. To, to say to God, I'm going to decide for myself. It's, it's to say to God, I hear what you're saying, but I'm putting my own pleasure ahead of you. But there is also beauty in waiting. By waiting, we're doing a few things. Uh, the first thing, by waiting, we are blessing and honoring our spouse, whether they're a current spouse or a potential future spouse. By waiting, we are building anticipation. By waiting, we are protecting ourselves and protecting others. And by waiting, and this is probably the most important thing, by waiting, we are expressing our trust and confidence in God. We are trusting Him and His good design. You see, waiting is actually kind of core to being a follower of Jesus. We wait for His return. We wait for a final end to sin. We wait for the, blessing of etern- the blessings of eternal life in God's new creation. We trust and we wait. We trust God's promises, His character, His goodness. And in this area, God asks us to trust His good design. And it's worth the wait because God's good design for sex is beautiful. It's beautiful. And there are four key parts to His beautiful design that we see here in Song of Songs. Uh, the first is, uh, sorry, the four parts. Sex is for marriage, uh, which is intimate, safe, and exclusive. Those are the four bits. Marriage, intimate, safe, and exclusive. Um, now, as the anticipation builds through the rest of chapter 3, uh, the woman, she likens the arrival of her man to the triumphant procession of King Solomon. Uh, now, her man is not King Solomon, uh, but to her, he's a king. Uh, and finally, they come together in chapter 4. And as they come together in chapter 4, did you notice uh, that it doesn't, as, as they're kind of reunited, it doesn't begin with a man kind of desperately trying to satisfy a physical urge. No, it begins with intimacy. Their union begins with, not with a physical romp between the sheets, but a man doing an extended wow to his beloved. See there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Verse 1, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Over the next six verses, he's going to praise her. He's going to praise all of her. Her eyes, her teeth, her hair, her lips, her temple, her neck, her breasts. And he'll he'll do it in language that is uh, totally understandable for her, but very weird for us. Fellas, if you're looking to impress a woman, I can, uh, suggest, can I suggest, don't say that her hair looks like a flock of goats. <laughs> At the time, it meant it was lush and flowing, uh, but it probably wouldn't be heard that way today. Uh, another tip, don't say, hey, babe, I'm really glad you haven't lost any teeth. <laughs> Back in those days, uh, without dentists, uh, maybe that was a compliment that she had all her teeth. Now, even if the images are weird for us, it's clear these words, they're affectionate, aren't they? And they're actually abundant. And it's deliberate, isn't it? 
You see, if you read through these first seven verses in chapter 4, you see these kind of little biblical Easter eggs, these little allusions to other parts of the Bible. And what they are telling us is that this man is saying, I have been blessed by God. I've been blessed by God. And he notices seven features. And if you were Jewish, you'd go, oh yeah, seven. That's perfection. That's the number that God uses to describe things that are perfect. And so to this man... This woman is perfect. She is the only one in his eyes. She's not like one of Solomon's many wives. She's not an image on a screen, but she is absolutely beautiful to him. And he nails it as he concludes in verse 7. He says, verse 7, You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. It's a picture of intimacy, isn't it? Of love and connection. Now, we know from chapter 1 that her body bears the scars of hard work. We know from chapter 1 she is not a supermodel. But to him, she is the most beautiful woman in the world. The blemish here, the bulge there, it makes no difference for him because she is his standard of beauty. He is not comparing her to an actress on the TV or a porn star on the internet or someone at the beach or the secretary in the office. You see, for this man and for this woman, their spouse is what defines what is most beautiful. Their spouse is what defines what is most beautiful. So for me, I'm really into 41-year-old redhead Australians. They have beautiful voices but they can never remember the words. And their hands and their feet turn into ice blocks in winter, which is always a shock when they find their way through the sheets to find somewhere to warm up. Now, if you are married, the person you are married to is your standard of what is beautiful. They are what you are into. There is nothing that kills intimacy faster than insecurity by one or both feeling like they don't measure up but the opposite is true as well intimacy intimacy flourishes when we know that we are loved it flourishes when we know that we are loved Uh, there's a quote that we share with uh, couples when they're preparing to get married Uh, I can't remember who said it but it's Uh, touch her heart before you touch her body. Touch her heart before you touch her body. That's what this guy is doing here. And this intimate declaration of love, it reaches its crescendo in verse 9. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart. It's a picture of intimacy. The man offers his wife his heart, not just his hands, his heart, his whole self, not just his body. And this intimacy here, it ought to be casting our minds back, casting our minds back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we get a description of marriage, and it says this. It says that a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You see, right from the very beginning, part of the original design, sex has been inextricably linked 
to love and intimacy and commitment. It's the union of two people so close that they become one flesh. And it's not just a physical union, but a deep emotional bond. You see, it says there, they felt no shame. It's a picture of intimacy, isn't it? You see, sex in marriage, what it does is does, it reinforces that bond. It operates like the superglue that binds people together. That's why when a couple date and break up, it's painful. It can be very painful. But if you add sex to that, well, it becomes even more painful because that glue is at work in God's good design. Because sex, whether you intend it or not, it is communicating to the other person. I love you and I'm willing to commit my entire life to you, my whole self to you. Now, with that sort of intimacy, with that sort of commitment comes safety, doesn't it? See, if we stay in Genesis chapter 2, what we see in God's good design for sex, we see it's kind of super consensual. Uh, The picture of Genesis chapter 2 isn't someone just giving their body to another or just giving pleasure to someone, but it's two two people committing their whole of life to one another. And that's what sex communicates. It's, I'm giving my whole self to you. I'm not hiding or withholding anything of myself. And so sex without marriage, it means that we're writing checks with our body that we're not willing to honour with the rest of our life. But this whole of life commitment of sex inside marriage, it leads to safety. And we see this in uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, He says to his bride, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon, descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Senir, the summit of Mount Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountain haunts of the leopards. It's a bit strange what's going on here, but what's going on here is that this, this man is calling his lover from danger and from a place of vulnerability, and he's, she's not really on a mountain, she's not really amongst lions, but he's calling her to be with him, to be with him because their relationship and his time, being with her is a safe place. Them being together is a safe place. And that's where sex belongs in marriage, in a place of safety, in a place of protection and security, in a place of promise and whole of life commitment. And the third part of the picture here we get is exclusive. Uh, This belongs just to this couple. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. You see, this is a private thing. This is theirs alone. This here is a picture of exclusivity. Now, we don't have many kind of locked gardens in Wellington, but I remember seeing them all over the UK uh, there'd be this luscious garden and it's got a fence around it and a lock. And all we can do is, is, is walk past and maybe peer in, but we cannot go in. And the, the man describes his beloved like a locked garden, a sealed fountain. And what he's saying is that this, this, this part of their relationship, this is not public property. Uh, her body, her love, her affection, it's not there for anyone to enjoy. Their relationship is theirs alone. But then notice that once they're married, look there in verse 16, she invites her husband in. Verse 16, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may be spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. It's her garden and she allows him in and only him. And we see here as well that in God's good design, sex is self-giving not self-gratification. 
The husband and the wife, by choice, give themselves to the other for the other's joy. They approach intimacy with an act of service so that they might serve their spouse in this way. And the final picture of God's good design for sex is that it belongs in the covenant of marriage. Now have a look there in verse 9 again. Verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. Uh, if you're wondering about the sister bit, uh, it's, that's, that's kind of picking up the idea that, of, of a deep, closer friendship. There's a, there's, uh, I don't think it's actually brother and sister. Don't worry about that. Uh, but he calls her his bride. His bride. Six times in this chapter, he calls her his bride. And this chapter, this one that speaks most clearly about intimacy, it is the only time he calls her his bride. Because what Song of Songs is saying emphatically here is that sex and marriage go together. In God's good design for sex, it's to be experienced and expressed in a marriage that is intimate and safe and exclusive. That's where it belongs. That's what God made it for. And in God's good design, sex is good. Its design is never cold. Never mechanical, never just meeting a physical urge. But it's beautiful and it's abundant and it's safe and expansive and heterosexual and creative and consensual and deeply personal. And so in the context of an intimate, safe, exclusive marriage, that is where sex is beautiful. That is where it belongs. Because if you take it outside of that good design, it just becomes lust And lust is ugly. Lust is ugly because lust selfishly uses someone else as a thing for my own gratification. Marilyn Monroe, she was one of the greatest sex symbols of the 50s, and she said this. She said this. She said, a sex symbol becomes a thing. I hate being a thing. And later she said, I never liked sex and I don't think I ever will. It seems the opposite of love. You see, lust, it only damages ourselves and damages those around us. Lust can never, ever deliver the intimacy that we want and we desire. That's why viewing that porn image later on today or swiping through Instagram, it will never satisfy. That's why a one-night stand or erotic fiction, it never satisfies. It never satisfies because it takes sex out of the context in which God has made it. And it takes it out of there, and so it, be, it, it, it ruins it. But God's design for sex is so much better. In a marriage filled with intimacy and safety to the exclusion of all others. And in this God-given context, it's a beautiful blessing from Him. Now, you might be here hearing this uh, picture, this beautiful picture of marriage and sex and intimacy, and you might be thinking, but wait, what about me? What about where I'm at? You might be saying, but wait, what about my guilt and shame? You might be thinking, my garden, it hasn't been locked up. I've pursued sex outside of God's good design, driven by lust and selfishness. I've used others for my own pleasure. Or you might be saying, but wait, what about me? Sex has been imposed on me. Someone has broken through the gate and forced themselves into the garden. 
And some of you are thinking, if only people knew what I have actually Jesus knows absolutely everything you've done. Jesus knows absolutely everything you've thought. He knows everything you've searched online. And he is determined to let you into his garden. You see, the gospel of Jesus, it brings good news for those who have failed. You see, what is Christianity? Well, is God asking his son, will you take this man and that woman and that man and that teenager and that woman and that child, will you take them to be yours? And Jesus says, yeah, I know what they have done, but absolutely, I will. I will give my life for them. And then God asks you a question. Will you take Jesus to be your loving Lord? At the moment you say yes, you take Jesus' hand and you are completely forgiven. Washed clean of every sin, every sexual sin, and you are united with him. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. Leave your lust in the past and embrace my good design. Now, there'll be some in this room who are saying, but wait, I'm not buying it. I don't like it. I don't like what the Bible has to say when it comes to sex. Can I just say that if you're engaging in sex outside of marriage, you are fighting your maker. If you're engaging in foreplay out of marriage, you are fighting your maker. If you're watching porn, you are fighting your maker. And if you are fighting your maker, then you can expect no intimacy or satisfaction or joy that comes from living in line with his good design. And the Bible's warning is clear here. If you continue to fight your maker, you risk missing out on the kingdom of God. You see, we cannot worship our own sexual gratification and God at the same time. And so what God calls you to do today is to repent and turn back to him, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask for the forgiveness that he's longing to show you, to give you. And if you do that, then only then will you find true peace. Now, there'll be something here saying, but wait, this is really frustrating. This leaves me feeling so frustrated. Only for heterosexual marriage... That's too restrictive for me. What if I never have sex? What if I'm same-sex attracted? What about my difficult marriage where there might be no sex at all? I think there are two things to say about this. The first thing is we need to remember that there is frustration in every relationship in the world. There's frustration in every relationship. In every happy, happy, smiling marriage on the outside, there will be frustration there. In every single person, there is frustration. In every person experiencing same-sex attraction, there is frustration. Frustration is part of every relationship. It's part of life in this world that is fractured by sin because we have not followed God's good design. No relationship in this world will bring us the fulfillment and the joy and the satisfaction that we deeply desire. That can only come through a relationship with God through Jesus. And so we all experience frustration 
the only satisfaction we will really receive is through a relationship with God through Jesus. The second thing to say about this is that we as a church, we can be contributing to the pain and frustration of people, of single people, of widowed people, of divorced people, of people with same-sex attraction. We can, we can contribute to the pain and frustration by exalting human marriage so much that we communicate, maybe intentionally or accidentally, that intimacy is only found in marriage. That friendship and connection can only be found for those who are married. But it's just not true. Intimacy, friendship and connection is not just for married people. You see, the person sitting next to you today, whether they are single or same-sex attracted or married or widow, they have the same desire for intimacy. They have the same desire for connection and friendship that you do. You see, that is part of how God made them, as he made them in his image. And so we as a church needs to be a place that offers appropriately intimacy and connection and friendship for all. And our church needs to be a place that points people to the ultimate relationship, that doesn't exalt marriage as, as the pinnacle, as the mountaintop, but that points people to the ultimate relationship, that the most important thing for them is not to find someone to get married, but the most important thing for them is to find Jesus. Where real and lasting intimacy, without frustration, can be experienced for everyone. For everyone, whether they be single or same-sex attracted or married or young or old. You see, it's really important for us to remember that sex and marriage are not the ultimate. You see, what sex and marriage do is they point, they lift our eyes. They lift our eyes to something even greater. Uh, when reflecting on the beauty we can experience in this life, C.S. Lewis put it like this. Uh, he said, They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a country we have not visited. Marriage and sex and intimacy, for all its goodness, it is only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have not visited. You see, they point us forward and upward to the ultimate relationship. The ultimate relationship of safety and of love and of intimacy. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, uh, he joins the dots for us here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, he, he borrows from Genesis chapter 2 and he says this. He says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is not the pinnacle. Sex is not the mountaintop, just the scent of a flower, just the echo of a tune that point us to the ultimate relationship with Jesus. Like these lovers pursue one another in song of songs, God, the ultimate lover, has pursued you. He has pursued you at great cost to himself, giving up his beloved son. And when you enter that relationship with God, he says, I'm going to put a ring on it. I'm going to commit myself to you forever. And that is the most beautiful, the most intimate, the most fulfilling relationship of all. Will you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we hear it and as we apply it to our lives, that we might have great trust in you, that we might trust your good design. But Lord, we also pray that we might seek you first and foremost, that we might find fulfillment completely in our relationship with you through Jesus. And Lord, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Uh, for me, as I just want to come up, uh, we're going to respond to God's word uh, through singing. Uh, one of the areas, uh, there's probably a few areas of life that can elicit uh, quite the same depth of feeling of guilt and shame. Uh, but we come to God knowing that he, his mercy is more that he, in the cross of Christ, has done everything we need to deal with our sin, to deal with our guilt, and deal with our shame so that we can be new, made new by him. Uh, So please stand as we remind each other of these things.